Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right. Is everybody ready? Hang on. I'm just going to consult with my IT person. I'm just wondering what I can do to improve the sound. I mean, the trouble is we get a different result every time I put a different microphone in. Anyway, if this is good enough, we can carry on. Hello, this is Colin Schindler, welcoming you all once again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, which I always like to say is the new podcast about old football. But now that we have nearly 30 podcasts available to download, we're not new any longer. Much like my very good friends John Holmes and Paddy Barkley, because all three of us on this podcast are probably approaching that part of the season of our lives in which promotion to a celestial afterlife becomes a significant feature and relegation to eternal damnation causes a bit of anxiety, even among those of us whose faith revolves around football rather than old-time religion. My idea of hell is to be forced to watch Manchester United winning endless matches in which victories are the result of unluckily deflected last-minute own goals or intimidation of the referee by Roy Keane, while sitting in the main stand at Old Trafford, surrounded by supporters, in inverted commas, from Norway and Azerbaijan. Our very welcome guest today is Andy Hamilton, the multi-talented comedian, game show panellist, television director, comedy screenwriter, radio dramatist, novelist, actor, and not least, Chelsea supporter, or possibly ex-Chelsea supporter, because to judge from his latest excellent book, Blue Was the Colour, Andy has made the same journey as a football supporter as I have, from La Grande Illusion to Bitter Disillusion, a film not directed by Jean Renoir. Andy, have I misinterpreted what you wrote? No, that's fair. Yeah. The book is like a love letter. It's like a love letter to football, but a love letter from a jilted lover who feels his partner's turned fat and ugly. But, you know, I tell it through comedy because that's the only way I can tell stories. That's how I see the world. But I think our lives have mirrored each other a bit, yeah. Yes, they definitely have. I mean, John, I have to bring in at this point because John has retained all the enthusiasm of adolescence. I mean, it's very nice to be mirrored in the fact I don't feel alone anymore in this podcast of two completely bonkers all right. football well I'm still quite adolescent and I still play I mean I still love the sport I still play I try to play twice a week and I play on a Friday night with lots of old geezers on the roof of a school in South Kensington so I still love the game if someone does something special in a match particularly if they're wearing a Chelsea shirt I'm still sort of mentally out of my seat you know but what I've lost is the urge to go and watch Chelsea live I've lost that a lot I don't have that urge and also I've lost the dread of losing which I never thought would happen I never thought that it would get to the stage where I didn't dread losing if I'm listening on the radio and Chelsea are 2-0 up with quarter of an hour to go and the other team score I no longer sit there 
saying, oh, my God, here we go. We're going to throw this away. I just know it. And that's gone, which is maybe probably better for me in terms of yeah. my health and mental well-being. But it's interesting. We had a little launch event for the book, and it was mostly attended by rather sad elderly Chelsea fans. There was one little guy down the front who said, I secretly hope we'll get relegated because he, he <laughs> wants to relive the experience of his early watching Chelsea, which was, you know, we were in the second division for a long time and many of us did sit through goalless draws with Shrewsbury and he sort of nostalgically hankered. I wouldn't go quite that far necessarily. But... Well, let me ask John the question. I'm just curious to know whether he, John is enjoying life in what is now we all call the second division more than he was enjoying the rather tortured season he had in the Premier League last year. I think I am, actually. I thought at the beginning of the season, really, that I would probably not get that enthusiastic about going and stop going. But, you know, we've been winning a few games. We've not been playing very well, actually. But there have been certain moments. I know you got cross with me the other week because I said that Vardy's celebration after he scored a penalty was completely out of order. The reaction of most Leicester fans was actually there's been an outpouring of love to Vardy. We realise that he's at the end of his career. This is the man who, when he came, we'd won nothing, really. We've now won the Cup. We've won the League. He won Football of the Year. He won Golden Boot. And the cry, Jamie Vardy has won more than you, to almost every side we play against in the championship. It's quite funny, especially as they spend time taunting him about his wife. But he smiles at them and takes a bow from them when he scores. So we're, I am enjoying what may be his swan song this year. And one of the joys, you know, following teams is to see young players come through mm, yeah. that no one's ever heard of and see them develop. Yeah. We had one or two under Jock Wallace. There was a player called Lineker who came. Whatever but anyway, him. now we've got one or two young players who you're watching each week and they're developing. You see they're getting better because they're allowed to have a chance to do that rather than umpteen players being brought in from abroad, some of which never play, others of which you absolutely know will move on if they get better. Let me switch it back to Chelsea. Paddy, let me bring you in. I've, as a northerner, Mm. not quite as north as you are, obviously, we've always been slightly dismissive of Chelsea on all that King's Road nonsense from the 1960s. That was my generation of City supporters, you know, flashy Osgood and all that stuff. (laughs) We weren't that thrilled. But you come from a different cultural background. I'm wondering what your attitude to Chelsea is, because Chelsea is the subject for this week. Yeah, well, Andy won't know, but you lot know only too well through your bruised eardrums that I'm a Dundee supporter. That's the team of my heart. I didn't buy into all that bollocks, you know, King's Road stuff. It was very remote. But when they signed Charlie Cook from Dundee, Ah. Charlie Cook only played 18 months at Dens Park, but he's a legend, absolute legend. I mean, no good player spends more than 18 months at Dens Park. But when he went to Chelsea, suddenly it made Chelsea more beautiful. You know, he was, I think, man of the match, Andy, when they won the Cup Winners' Cup against Real Madrid, was it? Yeah. He was dazzling. That made me love Chelsea. And then I started loving Chelsea again. Well, really when Hoddle went, actually, from as soon as Hoddle went, they started playing beautiful football. Hoddle, Hullet, Viali, all that kind of stuff. And I still like them now. I mean, earlier in the season, they came to Fulham. And absolutely battered us two 0 You know, I don't, I don't sort of have anything against Chelsea. I don't like the fans. Um, I mean, that's a that's a huge. Well, <laughs> it's a huge generalisation. <laughs> really, Paddy? I'll tell you what I'm conditioned by. You know, you go in a Fulham Broadway station after the game, and there's children on the platform, and they're shouting F and C words. About five hundred of them. That's what I don't like. But I like individual ones. I've only just met Andy, but I mean, of course, I've loved him from afar for long enough, you know, and admired his ability, his talent. I could reel off loads of nice people that I know individually. I just can't understand why when they get together, they turn into such. You see, I I nearly used one of the words that I was complaining about. (laughs) 
Sorry. All right, Andy, justify, justify. Yeah, right to reply. I was about to say God bless you, Patrick, till you got to the end. I think part of me agrees with you about the fans, or at least about that very noisy section of very entitled, yeah. abusive fans. It always makes me laugh, because when I go home on the district line, Earl's Court Station, the platform, is absolutely packed with them. Often middle-aged guys, not all young guys, yeah. in very tight-fitting Chelsea tops. <laughs> and they squeeze onto the Wimbledon train, and part of me wants to grab them and say, it's fucking two minutes' walk from here. <laughs> Just, you know, because if you know the cut-throughs, it is so, you know. And I know a lot of Chelsea fans who are alienated by the behaviour yeah. you're talking about. On the Northern thing, it always made me laugh. I remember there's a classic episode of The Lightly Lads where James Bolam as Terry, they start talking about football and someone mentions Chelsea and he says, oh, I hate Chelsea. Yeah. He says they come running out looking like the young generation, which was the <laughs> dance troupe on, sadly, Rolf Harris's show. That's because Chelsea were the first maybe to go with a really slick kind yeah. of mod strip as well. Yeah. But that kind of north-south thing, I remember going to a game at Burnley and I hadn't really seen the North, if I'm honest. <laughs> I would have been about 13, I suppose. It's been there for a long time. And uh, I was with my brother and his mates. And one of them, who was a mod, we got out the car and he did do that thing. Of, there were lots of boys, sort of ragamuffin boys looking at us. And he said to this kid, where do you live? He said, just there, mister. He said, right, I'm putting you in charge of this car. Anything happens to this car, I'm ringing your doorbell. I mean, the King's Road thing, there were a lot of, actors and celebrities in the 60s who went to Chelsea because actors and celebrities went to Chelsea. I remember Superman came once, Christopher Reeve, and the fans spotted him and they all started singing the theme from Superman and he stood up and gave them this kind of salute. Yeah. Well, that was the point. They went to Chelsea like Raquel Welch went to Chelsea and Henry Kissinger went to Chelsea. Yes, against Leicester. I don't remember Kissinger going to Millwall. Raquel Welch, maybe she went to watch Leicester, John. <laughs> ah, well, there you are. There is a story, you see. I think one of the factors in this was that Dickie Attenborough came from Leicester. Well, he was educated in Leicester, let's put it like that. He was actually at school with my dad and he sort of defected to the South, became the ultimate lovey. And despite the fact, he said until the end of his life that Sepp Smith, one of the legendary figures of Leicester, was his favourite player. And he mentioned a goal scored in 1940-46 by Walter Spider Harrison as one of his favourite ever goals. He became a Chelsea fan. So he's a turncoat. But of course, he was the ultimate lovey and he adopted Chelsea and he was a proper football fan for all his misguided behaviour in later life. Let's put it like that. But we used to be everybody's second favourite team because the team that Paddy was talking about, I mean, I absolutely adored Charlie Cook. We yeah. all did. Yeah. 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 Me and Libby were getting ready to go out to a party one night Lib was getting ready and I just idly picked up Charlie Cook's autobiography and there was a picture of him and a chap I'm trying to remember his first name uh, his second name was Galustian and together they ran a curva school in America and there was a photograph of him and I knew that the party we were going to the hostess her surname was Galustian so I said to my wife Libby oh that's a coincidence we went to the party and then, you know, say for the sake of argument, his name was Albert or something. I just said to the hostess, I said, you're not related to Albert Galustian, are you? And she said, yeah, he's my uncle. He's over there. <laughs> he's over from America. So I went and chatted to him. He was a very nice guy, very interesting. And he ran this school, this football school with Charlie Cook. And he said that Charlie Cook comes over quite a lot. And I said, well, does he still play? He said, yeah. I said, would he, does he, what's he do? What about Friday evenings? Because well, I had this kind of fantasy that I was going to turn up at five aside on a Friday evening and say, oh, we were a bit short. I've roped in this mate. In those days, we played with young guys and I knew that none of them would have known who Charlie Cook was. Yeah. He would have just been another old geezer, you know. And I had this fantasy of, of 
Bring it out, Charlie Cook, you know. That's my landline ringing. Thanks, Lip. <laughs> yeah, that'll be Charlie now. <laughs> <laughs> Saying he's available. But wouldn't that have been fantastic? Charlie would have been nutmegging the young lads and you never lose what he had. Has. No, he was a remarkable player. But Chelsea had a fine tradition of Scottish players. Yep. I mean, going back from before I was watching them, even with Huey Gallagher and people like that. But then when I was growing up, we had George Graham, yep. Johnny Boyle, Eddie McCready, Charlie Cook, you know, and then later on we had Pat Nevin, David Speedy. It was a very strong tradition. Let's go back to earlier then. Let's start at the beginning because your first great hero was the great Jimmy Greaves. He was, and in the book I describe how heartbroken I was when he left and I wrote a letter to him, which he never replied to, telling him it was a mistake to go to AC Milan. And then joyfully, many years later, I did get to talk to him on the phone about it. But, I mean, I only saw him play live a couple of times. The first game I saw, he didn't score. There were six goals. We beat Newcastle 4-2 and he didn't score. Two weeks later, I went back, we played Man City and Man City had Dennis Law in the team and we won 6-3 with a hat-trick from Greaves. That was my first two games and I thought, this is absolutely brilliant. You go on a Saturday, you see tonnes of goals, your team win, Greaves scores a hat-trick. I thought that was it. (laughs) Following season, we were relegated. But during lockdown, I watched absolutely tonnes of archive, and I found lots and lots and lots of early Greaves, mostly playing for Tottenham, but there was some of his early Chelsea stuff. And there's one game, I think they're playing Forest, and he's just broken into the first team, and it's someone like Cliff Mitchellmore is the commentator. And he says, oh, and here comes Greaves, this 17-year-old, very, very promising. Look at the way he moves, lovely mover. Then there's a pause, and then he says... Not the deepest of thinkers. (laughs) That's the commentator. And those early commentaries are full of moments like that. You know, a little bit of contempt for the the working class player, you know. But the more archive of Greaves I watched, the more I appreciated why he was so exceptional. And I say in the book, you know, not meaning to be rude, but I say that he makes Shearer look like a donkey. Yeah. Just because... I've never seen anyone as fluent as Greaves was. The way he ran, his feet just barely kissed the ground. And the other thing that I realised watching the archive back is that he was a much better creative player than people gave him credit for. I was just going to ask you about that, Andy, because I remember his breakthrough and he was an inside forward, wasn't he? And he's remembered as a great striker. But he was more than a striker, certainly at Chelsea, wasn't he? Yeah. You can see it at Spurs as well. I know Bill Nicholson never really, weirdly, Nicholson never really rated Greaves, I don't think. But if you watch the England versus the rest of the world game, yeah. for instance, his passing was lovely. Yes. Always along the ground, always put into the path of the player, and he saw things. So I think he was a bit short-changed because the popular view became that he was a goal-hanger, you know, and that he didn't contribute to the team effort. Yeah, yeah, that's the way people talk about him now. yeah. Funnily enough, on that same subject, Dennis Law, who again is remembered as a goal scorer, told me that virtually every match of his career he was played out of position. He said, I was a box-to-box midfield player. He didn't say box-to-box. He said, I was an all-round midfield player. He thought he was Brian Robson, but everybody else thought he was a, a striker. And it's strange, Greaves could quite easily have played the part of Johnny Haynes just as much as the part of Gary Lineker. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of archive of... Law playing for Scotland. There's a lot of Scotland-England matches. And for Scotland, he seems to be everywhere. You know, he is creative. He's always trying sort of sparky passes. He does quite a lot of ball play tricks, you know. Flair player, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of players who actually only belong to one club. Now, you were very young at the time, Andy, but I know when Mike Summerby and, and Francis Lee left City and went to Burnley and Derby County, and they came back to Main Road, they looked wrong. They were wearing the wrong shirt. So when Spurs played Chelsea and you saw Greaves in a Spurs shirt, did you have that sense that he's got the wrong dressing room? He's got the wrong shirt on? I felt that less with Greaves because I hadn't physically seen him so many times. But I felt it totally with, 
you know, like seeing Frank Lampard in a Man City shirt. That was a, an out-of-body experience. Yes, that's right. Or even seeing Juan Mata, who was a player I loved, yeah. in a United shirt, looked totally wrong. Or even David Luiz in an Arsenal shirt. It just looks like there's something wrong with your telly. Yeah, you? exactly, yeah. Mind you, Andy, as a Dundee supporter, you get used to that because, you know, our great players, you know, like, well, Greaves' partner at Tottenham, Alan Gilzean, is remembered as a sort of Spurs player. We remember him as a Dundee player, but they don't stay long with us, so we get used to them wearing imposter shirts. Chelsea were, of course. My first recollection of Chelsea was that they were supposed to be the musical joke side, weren't they? The yes. fact that they'd won the league in 1955 was regarded as one of those freaks, a bit like Leicester winning recently. And they were never regarded in the same breath as either Tottenham or Arsenal, who were the top London sides, the sort of aristocracy of football at that point. Yeah. But Chelsea were actually, as you say, in my youth, we quite liked Chelsea. Their ground was a bit bizarre with that funny stand, the double-decker stand. The North stand. Yeah, that was sort of off at a bizarre angle. And then, of course, I can remember University at Leeds, where we, you know, most of us actually hated Leeds, although we were forced to watch them and they never lost, you know, and they always kick people to death and all the rest of it. And I was firmly on the side of Chelsea in that cup final, even though actually poor Eddie Gray, who played an absolutely magnificent game in the first game, was hacked to death by Ron Harris only in the second once. game. It was one hack, John. <laughs> you know. Did you go to those cup finals, Andy? Were you at Wembley? Oh, yeah, I was at both. I bunked off to go to the replay which was actually two and a half weeks after the final. That's right. And I had to emotionally blackmail my mum into giving me a note to explain my absence from school. And, <laughs> and we had this deputy headmaster who was bright as a button. He said, oh, you're off sick. I said, yeah. He said, was it one of those 24-hour bug things? I said, yeah, there's a lot of it around, sir. And did you find the bracing Manchester air cured it? And I knew this was a trap. So I said, I'm really sorry, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. And he just pushed his face really close to mine. He said, don't push it, Hamilton. But no, I was there. And it was one of those classic examples. It was an extraordinary game. The referee lost control at the beginning and it, it just got more and more gladiatorial and more brutal. But with about 20 minutes to go, my brother turned to me and said, bloody Osgood, look at him. He's just done absolutely nothing. He's a lazy... <laughs> Osgood scored that wonderful header. So I went to that. I went to the first game as well and I took my stool. You'd be surprised to know I was quite a short child and my brother had made a stool in his woodwork lesson for me that I could stand on. And I don't know if you remember, Old Wembley, the terraces were very wide. You could get two people per terrace. And I was on the front of the terrace and when Bobby Tambling scored a kind of what turned out to be a consolation goal a few minutes from the end, the crowd surged. And of course, I parted company from the stool as I often did. At the end of the game, we said, let's go look for the stool, and we never found it. So I don't know where and how many ankles it broke on the way down. I've I no idea. No. Well, if anybody is listening and that stool came into their possession, shall we yes. say, I'm sure Andy would appreciate having it back. I would. I'd love it. Uh, yes. The address of the podcast will be at the end. I'm not honouring any civil lawsuits, though. <laughs> if it turns out that someone was maimed by it, a ballet dancer's career was ended there and then, then I'm not honouring it. Yeah, well, that will fit in with the Chelsea support at that point, ballet dancers, you're right. I mean, the other show-busy bit, of course, about Chelsea, and this also concerns Fulham, in Minder, Dennis Waterman was given the role of a Fulham fan. But in actual fact, he was a Chelsea fan. Yeah, but Jerry McCann had a heart of gold, therefore he had to be cast as a Fulham fan. Yeah. 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 Can I go back to the 1960s, Andy, and ask you, Yeah. there was a young side around the mid-60s under Tommy Doherty, including Barry Bridges and Terry Venables and so on. They gave way to a more you know, successful side under Sexton. 
Do you remember that transition and what your feelings were as they moved from one team to the next? I mean, as well as writing to Jimmy Greaves, begging him not to leave Chelsea, when Tommy Doherty dropped Barry Bridges, I wrote to Tommy Doherty saying, you know, you're wrong to drop Barry Bridges. He dropped him for Osgood. You know, that's how Osgood came through. So I was totally wrong. But we were surprised when Doherty got the sack. Although... Most of us never really forgave him for what is now known as the Black Ball oh, yes, incident. Course. You know, because in the 64-65 season, technically we were in line for the treble. We had defeated Leicester City in the League Cup over two legs. Very fortunately, due to a last-minute goal and a very, very defensive performance. At your place, yeah. yeah. But the goal that won it was an amazing goal from Eddie McCready. He went the length of the field. It was astonishing. And then we were really well placed and it got to Easter and we had two away fixtures, one at Burnley and one at Blackpool. And Doherty decided to stay up in Blackpool and eight players broke his curfew. And because he was sort of a young manager and a bit insecure, I think, he decided to drop them all, send them all home. So we played against Burnley and Blackpool with reserves and got hammered. And a lot of fans never really forgave him for that. Because it seemed more about his ego than it did about what was best for the team, you know. And he did subsequently admit that he'd overreacted. Well, Sexton was a much smaller character than Doherty. But how influential was he in the... Sometimes the emergence of players has got little to do with the manager. They're just great players who arrive at the same time, at the same age, in the same team. How much influence did Sexton have over the team that won the European Cup and his Cup and the Cup in the previous year? Well, he assembled a squad that had a lot of skill. You know, we had four ball players. We had Hudson, Houseman, Osgood and Cook. You know, and Hollins could play yeah. a bit as well. But we had four flair players and a lot of character in the team. You had people like Davy Webb, who was not the world's greatest footballer, but he was a hell of an asset, you know. And they played with a fairly free style as well. You know, they were great to watch. And he did do things like he put Hudson in. When he was 18, Hudson, sort of 18 to 21, was peak Hudson. Probably things started to go a little bit awry after that. But he was an astonishing player in that period. So Sexton deserves a lot of credit, I think. Where he struggled was in dealing with big personalities sometimes. You yeah. know, he, I think he got upset with players who were probably quite big-headed, I think he struggled with. Would that explain why he got rid of my pal Alan Burchinall, Andy, do you think? Well, Birch was very, very popular at Chelsea. Wherever he's been, he's been popular, Birch. Because he's a wonderful, wholehearted player. But the truth, and you don't have to tell him I said this, <laughs> but the truth is, I will. they just acquired a squad where he became a fringe player rather than a, I think he knows a mainstay, yeah, you know. Yeah. And Hutchinson came through, and Birch was probably a better footballer than Ian Hutchinson, but Hutchinson was just this kind of extraordinarily indestructible so well he was destructible I mean he he was too brave for his own good he ended up with a shortened career and he also had this this sort of the first person to have a sort of showbiz throw-in wasn't it yeah he yeah. was an early exponent of the long throw-in but he sort of exaggerated yeah. the point that his arms were apparently going so fast they didn't stop when he let go <laughs> no it was a windmill action yeah. yeah I can remember the first time we saw it must have been about 69 and we were playing Ipswich and it was a nothing game and this Hutchinson who'd just been put in I think it was his first or second game took this throw and threw it so far that Bill Baxter actually headed it into his own net <laughs> it was like a howitzer win I mean you see players with long throws now but it was the trajectory on it that you made got the it. sense that it was like a corner that was yeah. the chant wasn't it at that point every time Chelsea got a throw in the fans chanted oh it's a corner yeah. So moving on into the 70s, I mean, when that team that we all remember from the, the cup-winning side started to decline, as inevitably these things always do, and this is the great thing about the great managers, that Ferguson and Guardiola and so on, they managed to replace the broken bits before they get broken. And Chelsea, like most managers, didn't manage to do that. Do you remember that moment where, when it all started to go? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think, as we're seeing now, as is always the case, the club was being badly run. You know, they invested in building the new East Stand, 
and then there was a builder's strike and then there was a cost of living crisis and they just got heavily mired in debt. Then Eddie McCready got them promoted back up into the first division and then he and the club fell out over a car, I think. I can't remember now. But they sacked him and it just felt like the club was rudderless. They got Danny Blanchflower in who had no experience of management, highly intelligent footballer, but a purist, you know, and Chelsea were fighting relegation and that didn't work. Yeah, I just think the club was badly run for a long time and the fish usually rots from the head, you know, and it was a while before it sort of recovered any equilibrium. But we all went, I say we all went, 25,000 of us kept going and I still quite enjoyed that period you know and there were a lot of young players and that you felt they were your players you know the team that Eddie McCready built was all out of the youth program you know and the fans identified with them was that the one with Rhodes Brown and Britain and people like that well that came a bit later Britain was there but people like Steve Finiston yes Ray Wilkins yeah. of course. Oh, wow. Ray Lewington what was the blonde centre forward's name Maybank was he there Teddy Maybank yeah, yeah that was an embarrassing Charm, there's only one Teddy Maybank. Well, he went to Fulham, but <laughs> Finiston was he had a really high ratio of goals to matches. Steve Finiston, I think you're repeating there what I said earlier. If you go to go down, it does give you the chance to watch some of these young players that come through from the academy, see a young boy emerge, hence the chant, you know, he's one of our own, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it does give you that opportunity to see those players and see them develop and see them gently get better, there's a sort of reward. You feel you do have an affinity with them. This is part of feeling that a club is a club and your club and part of your community when a player comes through. And there's often more chance to do that in the lower divisions rather than the Premier League now. What happens is a young player comes in, shows a bit of promise and we'll put him out on loan to someone. And I think you lose something that way they go to someone else and their fans sort of adopt them and say oh he's you know we brought him along and so on and maybe i don't know if anyone's broken down the statistics but i think the young player often loses their way psychologically if you're a young man and you break through into the first team of the club where you've been there from the academy stage and then they say you've done okay we're going to loan you to an obscure club in norway for a a season or two, I think a lot of them go backwards. A lot of them lose self-belief. They lose confidence. And I'm going to name drop now. I was chatting to Tony Adams on Sunday. You know, his charity, Sporting Chance, which helps footballers with mental health problems. He was saying the classic profile of their clients used to be a footballer maybe around the age of 30, possibly coming towards the tail end of his career, who'd had uh, several bad years of, you know, gambling addiction or whatever. He said the profile had shifted. They're now in their sort of 23, 24-year-olds. I mean, with Chelsea, I feel very strongly that the experiment, the kind of business model that they've adopted, which is basically factory farming young players, it would be very interesting to look at it at the end and say how many of those players actually became better players because of that whole experience. Because at the moment, it's very hard to think of any who've blossomed out on loan. The player that you've brought to mind, Andy, a player I absolutely fell completely in love with, a young player at Chelsea called Josh McEachern. Remember him? Yes. Lovely pass through the ball. Very delicate. Yeah. And I don't know where he is now. No. He got loaned to just about everybody. And I wonder if that knocked his confidence. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's character building. Harry Kane would be a case in point. Although he didn't set the hills on fire anywhere he went. He's come through. I think you could fairly say he's come through. Let me ask Andy about ownership because... I think when Abramovich took over Chelsea, that was almost the first time that we became very, very aware of who owned a football club. Whereas previously, I know Chelsea had been in the Mears family for a very long time in the way City had been in the Alexander family for a long time. And most clubs had some kind of family director who were there for some time. I think when Abramovich came, am I right or wrong, that it fundamentally changed 
the nature of football because the ownership changed so dramatically. What are your memories of that, Andy? Well, for us, the consciousness of the owner, of course, that was Ken Bates. Suddenly we had an owner who, let's not forget, he was thrown out of the Virgin Islands because they regarded him as, I'm going to say, a less than honest (laughs) businessman. He was chairman at Oldham and he was chairman at Wigan and he came... He was this sort of uh, braggart. I'm choosing my words carefully. We'd already had one owner whose wealth raised questions. But then I do remember when Abramovich bought the club, personally, I was very happy to see Bates go. But I didn't know anything about him, and none of us did, really. I remember reading this article that said they thought that one of the big sources of his wealth was that he'd stole a train full of diesel. I mean, a train that was a couple of miles long that was full of diesel that I think the EU had sent as part of Perestroika and it apparently gone into a forest and never come out. And this rumour was swirling around, which meant that we thought, oh, great, we got a Bond villain <laughs> as an owner. And we did what Newcastle fans will be doing now. Yeah. We compartmentalised because that's what sports fans do. We thought, oh, well, we're not sure about him. But, you know, I enjoyed watching Hazard and Drogba and and all the wonderful players who came because we were at such a rich club. But I think now the problem that Abramovich presented is now magnified so many times over because you've got two quite dangerous forces. You've got nation states buying clubs for geopolitical reasons, really. And now we've got this wave of highly acquisitive, mostly American venture capitalists who are buying the clubs and creating, you know, I think the multi-club model is going to create huge problems like the consortium that's buying Everton. They own, is it eight clubs? It's extraordinary. As do Abu Dhabi own a similar number of clubs all around the world. Same problem. Yeah, the money started to get big a long time ago, but there's been an exponential growth now. So where the money is kind of at such ludicrous, obscene levels, there's so much money swirling around, it will be attracting more and more corruption because that's what happens when the money gets to that scale. And I think the danger is that you reach the point where you, you think, what is the why of top flight football? Why does it exist? If it's merely a conveyance for unimaginably rich people to either get richer or to sports wash their repressive regimes. So I think that's what's going to happen. Is It's just, uh, and I mentioned in the book, and I'm sure some of you have had the same experience, I've got a lot of mates who are Chelsea supporters who've now started to go watch AFC yes. Wimbledon or go into their local amateur club down the road just because they've started to feel a little bit queasy about the whole experience. Anecdotally, this is what I find, and not wholly with people of my age, but generations below are disaffected by the atmosphere of football. But the, I was going to say the problem. The truth is that these people are being replaced by younger people who have different values. The Premier League is fantastically successful, not just on the telly, it's bums on seats despite the fact that the prices are very, very high. At Fulham this season, we've had something like 20% overall increase in the ticket price, and yet the crowds remain at the same level. So we are being replaced by people with different values, people who, as you brilliantly put it, Andy, compartmentalise and put their morals in one box and their support for the football team in another. Yeah. In a way, the fan base, the local fan base, is gradually getting supplanted by, replaced by the kind of tourist package, which is fine. There's a huge amount of money to be made from that market, and it's a global sport, so it makes sense. However, football doesn't exist in complete isolation. You know, the geopolitics might change that. God knows things are going badly enough wrong in lots of areas. It's quite easy to imagine a world in five, six years' time where maybe if the Chinese economy has a shock, you know, Chinese tourists aren't getting on flights and coming here specifically to go watch Chelsea or whatever. You know, and the same, to be honest, applies to the nation states. They're incredibly wealthy, 
but how stable they are is a an entire that's always what made me nervous about Abramovich I thought the whole club pivots on yes. one man and he's a man who lives in an unstable regime yeah I don't think Abu Dhabi or indeed Saudi Arabia are likely to be collapsing from you know by revolts from within I mean anybody opposed to the regime <laughs> doesn't stand much chance of making their views known widely for any length of time. But I take your point about Russia, absolutely. It appears to me that what we're seeing is the wars now, apart from what's going on in Ukraine, the wars are in terms of trade and actually sport. You know, the US always regarded they had a control of the world because their control of the Olympics was enormous. And the way you could really upset an American, I've said this before, was to tell them that actually the World Cup was bigger than the Olympic Games. They reacted like you'd shot their grandmother or something. (laughs) And what has happened now is that they've realised the World Cup is bigger. Football is bigger game. And there is now a war for world domination. And one of the battlefields is the Premier League between the oil countries, nation states buying clubs, and the Americans buying clubs and the clash of the way they behave. The Americans do it through hedge funds, through leverage, through all those sort of things. And the oil rich people just do it through coming in as a nation and buying up. So at the moment, you would say the oil countries are winning because Manchester City are winning everything. And the Americans are actually not doing so well in that regard. If you look at Manchester United, they're struggling. And Chelsea are struggling at the moment. But the Americans have an enormous appetite for doing this and they're competing between themselves to buy up more and more clubs, greater leverage and so on. You know, this is what created the Super League, wasn't it, in the end? The American-owned clubs who basically pushed for it because they thought this is the way we sort it out because they don't have relegation, let's get rid of it. They were then shocked by the fact that their own fans then mounted this massive demonstration. It does seem to me there is this war between different ethics, different cultures, and the Premier League is the expression of that. Yes, what the Americans would like to do, as we've discussed before, that the American sports is communist. It's highly regulated and protectionist, mainly through the absence of relegation, but not entirely so, because they also have salary caps and so on. In a way... John, the presence of the Abu Dhabis and the Saudi Arabias and so on is good because they couldn't give a shit about money. Money's nothing. Money's like air to them or water. Bad analogy, sorry, oil. So in a way, it mitigates against the chances of America getting close to the 14 votes required to abolish relegation in the Premier League, which is what the all like to do. I can yeah. bet my life on that. I mean, there were stupid things that Peter Kenyon said. There was a Manchester United one who said, we have more fans in the US than we do in UK. At which point you're inclined to say, well, why don't you fuck off there <laughs> and play there? Because it's absolutely not mm. true. They cannot distinguish between what it means to be a fan, a supporter, yeah. and actually a customer. Yeah. And there's a massive difference. We are football fans. That's where we come from. It's part of our identity. Colin's written lots of books. He's a very clever chap and everything. The only thing people actually know about him is he wrote this book, (laughs) Manchester United Ruined My Life. You know, my friends from all over the shop, the only thing they remember about me, are you still supporting Leicester? Of course I do. That's me. But even if you go to Abramovich, I mean, Andy actually said, and he was right, we'd never heard of him. No. He is one of the most powerful. He was part of this oligarchy that basically ran Russia and still does to an extent. And yet he spends a tiny fraction of his wealth on buying a football club. And everyone in the world knows him, not just Chelsea fans. Everyone in the world knows him. Yeah, yeah. The power of the game. That is the power of the game. You know, I can remember people saying to me years ago, why on earth would Robert Maxwell want to buy, I think he was trying to buy Man United at the time. I said, because it will make his name. He will become more famous. Everybody will know about him. I had an interesting 
rather uplifting experience. We had a little promotional event to launch the book, and as I said, it attracted a lot of Chelsea fans of a certain vintage, and there was a lot of conversation quite like the conversation we're having now. But then I left the event, and I walked up Oxford Street. I hadn't been up Oxford Street for a while. And just by the junction, there is a massive shop, and it said Paris Saint-Germain. And I thought, oh, maybe that's a fashion shop. But no, it is a club shop for Paris Saint-Germain in the heart of the West End. But there was no one in it. (laughs) It was empty. It was open, but it was empty, which sort of lifted my spirits until I realised that actually the Qataris, they won't care how many shirts they shift. What they want to be able to say is, we have a presence in the heart of London. That's how big we are. But going back to what Colin was saying about the stability of, and I don't want to sound too much like a Cassandra, but my only word of, it's a cautionary word, would be, say the Shah of Iran had wanted to buy a football club in 58, we probably would have said the same thing. We said, oh, he got tons of money. And the thing about those regimes, because they are repressive and they do crush opposition, they don't know they've got a problem until it erupts, you know. So I question whether those states are quite as stable as we imagine them to be. And similarly, it's not impossible to imagine a scenario where suddenly American investors are not looking to buy prestigious toys in Europe because they're too busy chucking themselves out of windows on Wall Street because, you know, there's so much civil conflict in America that it's tanked the economy. It's funny, I was chatting to a journalist and I was saying, you know, it's all predicated around the bubble of increasing TV revenues. And I said, that bubble will pop in the end. And he said, oh, no, but we've been saying that for years and it never has. I said, well, that's what people in bubbles think. So that's why it's a bubble. They're in the middle of it and it may be quite a long bubble. I said, but in the end it pops. And when it pops, there'll be consequences because banks, you know, at the moment, there have been lots of banks who thought that club owes so much money, maybe we should foreclose and just limit the damage. But they don't because they have huge PR damage. And also, if you're the bank that shut down Liverpool, you're going to lose hundreds of thousands of customers. So, you know, they exert their power in other ways. They go to the owners and say, right, you've got to sell to somebody else or whatever. But I think it's quite possible there will come a point where a bank says, do you know what? We are never going to see this money ever again. We better get out now. The one thing we've learned over the past 10 years is how unpredictable events are, you know. And I think that football is actually much more vulnerable because of the loss of the authentic fan, as John was talking about, because they used to come, come rain or shine, good times bad. Because they may have been lost now, I think football is really vulnerable to shocks. And and he's absolutely right. And in fact, you know, our early part of our careers, we both lived at Television Centre to an extent. And we would have thought in the 70s, 80s, 90s, well, Television Centre is going to be around forever. You couldn't see beyond it, that it would become a block of flats. You know, it was absolutely impossible. But to finish off, Andy, just coming to the end, I wanted to ask you, you've got two nominations to make, favourite player and favourite manager, with all the love that you have for the club and you've had over the years, forget all the rubbish that we've been talking about to an extent, that essential love for a particular player or a particular manager or a particular team, who is it? Who's your nomination? Well, if I had to say who's the player who gave me... Oh, that's really difficult. It would be between Zola and Osgood. Osgood gave me a huge amount of pleasure because that was a certain time in my life. But also he was a player with lots of dimensions to him. But I think I'd probably go for Zola just because watching Zola was such fun. He just delighted you, you know. And that was true of opposing fans as well. You know, he was one of the few players that would get little ripples of applause from opposing players because by that time people had stopped doing that. So I think Zola would probably be my favourite player. And favourite manager, well, I liked Ranieri just because he was so cheerful and his teams were fun to watch. And I liked Ancelotti because he just seemed so good at taking everything in his stride and and he produced a really attacking team. I liked Mourinho to begin with. 
you know, he was compelling and fun to watch and, and he was daring when he started, but he seemed to get consumed by the fear of losing. And also, he's obviously someone, he, he can only work at a place for two years. He's going to fall out, you know, he's got to have an enemy. And so I went off him. Well, I'm glad you brought up Zola. Whatever happened to him? Well, my favourite story about Zola came from a goal he scored. I was listening to Radio 5 at the time, and the commentator, I won't name the names because I can't know who it was, but he said, and over to Stamford Bridge, where Emil Zola has put Chelsea ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dan Franco Zola exposed anti-Semitism at the heart of the French government. Did you not know that? And scored a few goals into the bargain. What a player. What's not yeah. a player. There is one Zola story. You remember when he went to manage West Ham? Did you hear the story that they asked him not to join in the five asides because the players were finding it demoralised? <laughs> uh, you wait till Charlie Cook joins your five asides. <laughs> that would be my... I can die a happy man when can that happens. Can you imagine you flanked by Charlie Cook and, and John, I nearly said Emil, Franco Zola? I would love that. Yeah, I'd hold my own paddy. Well, we've equalised, I think, you know, people have been listening to the podcast for some time, there has been a slight northern bias, which has been the result of, of a Midlander and a northerner and a Scotsman <laughs> running the show. But I think we have done our best to equalise that by bringing in wonderful guests like Andy to talk about Chelsea, and we've done Spurs, and we will do Arsenal, don't worry. So if Millwall supporters want to write in and tell us what they feel about Millwall, we'll put it on the show. And if they want to get in touch with us, they need to write to footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. So thank you enormously to Andy Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you very much as ever to John Holmes and to Paddy Barclay for their insights as ever. And this is me, Colin Schindler, saying thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Cheerio! Is that all right, Paul? Can I just check? You talked when we spoke on the phone about builders. Was there building work happening? Because there was some background noise. Ah, do you know what I think that was? I think that was my computer. It was overheating and the fan came on. Doing it at the moment. Yeah, that's the fan on the computer. It smells like a train leaving the station. Or a plane taking off. Yeah, Colin, what you could do is do a new intro saying, on this show we're doing it live from Terminal 4 at Heathrow Airport, where we've managed to grab hold of Andy Hamilton as he <laughs> gets off to do a week in Las Vegas. Bloody <laughs> tea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't plug the book in... I should have held it in front of my face. Sports Social Podcast Network.